So after 42 short weeks, we're ready to uh, finish up the Gospel of John. <clears throat> I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I do feel like some ways we went a little fast, don't you all? I mean, it, it, there's so much in here, you could probably preach John 3, you could probably do 40 weeks on itself, but to kind of, we, we, we split 21 up, so we, we have a little bit of background to look at before uh, we get into the text. Uh, this is the seventh recorded post-mortem resurrection appearance of Jesus. We don't know exactly when it was, uh, but there were 12 total, and you can look at last week's uh, sermon notes if you want to get an outline of, of those. Uh, now, we already know that Jesus had acquired some fish. Uh, they were cooking on the fire that he made already, uh, but as we looked at last week, we tried to understand these different uh, uh, portions of the text. It seems to me that it's through these apostles that many more fish were caught. Jesus uses that uh, metaphor for Peter and others that they will be fishers of men. So the fish metaphor maybe being an enacted parable uh, like we have in some of the prophets. He's perhaps showing that he caught them. He caught the apostles. He, he has them ready to go but they're going to go out and catch more people through his power because it was his power that got the 153 fish into the net. On their own power, they caught nothing. And you, you see those different uh, verses in there about Jesus saying, without me, you can do nothing. And I think that's true for all of us. You think, well, I can't do anything on my own. Nothing ultimately eternal because as we just sung, if you're not forgiven, you're not in the kingdom. If you're not in the kingdom, you don't have God. If you don't have God, you can't do anything faithful. And if you don't do anything faithful, you're not doing anything eternal. So you have to have him to do this. And then last week, uh, one of the thoughts was that maybe the precision of recording 153 fish in the text before this could be implying that each fish, each person caught by the gospel, each person that is born again, who becomes a new creation, is precious in God's eyes. It makes a difference if there's 152 or 153. Even if you're the 153rd, you're just as important as the first one. <clears throat> Perhaps that's what's going on here. Maybe more. But that's kind of where we somewhat landed the plane. So that the key is with the catch of fish and with catching people or making disciples that the power comes from Jesus. You can't do it on your own, which is also shown in this kind of an acted parable. Paul puts it this way, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave it the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. If you think back to the parable of the sower, we're, we're supposed to put the seed out there. Remember what the seed was? The seed is the word. But we don't give it the growth, do we? The, the, even if you go back to the actual seed, the, the miraculous thing that happens every spring in Iowa and other places is still not, we can't make a seed. We can put it in the ground and watch it grow, but we don't make the seed. And I think that's the same thing here. We don't make the word, we just broadcast it. And that's the way... God gives it the growth um, and it lands where, and people who understand the gospel and are seeking him will have eternal life. So Peter, they're kind of waiting here. Um, it's kind of an interesting dynamic here. Somebody who, these guys have known him for probably three and a half years, yet they're just kind of waiting, 
They know there's something going on here. He obviously looks somewhat different. He's got this resurrected body. They know it's him. So when they had finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's interesting, this dynamic, you know, I don't think it takes a biblical scholar to figure out why there's three, and we'll look at that. But it's interesting the way this works, the way the first question is, and sometimes, I, I don't know if that happens to you, you can learn a lot by the Bible by just reading it. Sometimes we just don't read it, or we read it so quickly. You know, I don't know if you're that way. One of the worst things I ever tried to do as far as studying the Bible is try to read it in a year. By the middle of middle of January, I was so far behind, I quit that. It was almost as bad as those diet plans you go on at the beginning of the year. I, I think, again, just read the text, and you, you look at the way he asked this, do you love me more than these? You know, I, I've always said the pronouns are important in the Bible. Their pronouns are pointing all the time. If somebody says, hey, you, get out of here, you want to know if they're talking to you or someone else. Well, who are these? Well, it seems like the best thing you come up with is these other disciples. Do you love me more? It's probably not the fish, right? We're not going with the fish, are we? Anybody want to go with the fish? You, get out. No, I'm just kidding. You. It, it probably is the disciples, right? But you go back. You go back, to, back in the upper room. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? He said, where I'm going, you cannot go. He's talking about his death there. They didn't understand that. I will lay down my life for you. He's like, I'm going to lay my life down for you. I don't know about these other guys, but I'm, I'm your main man. And then, of course, you get, you know, you're going to lay your life down for me? You're going to deny me three times tonight. And I wonder if that's what he's saying. Are you a better disciple than all the rest of these guys? Do you love me more than these guys? You, you thought you did. You know, I think that's the point of this. It's the idea, because he doesn't say that after that. It's just, do you love me? Do you love me? I think he's kind of getting that out. You know, and don't be arrogant. And I don't think Peter at this point, you, you can think about this yourself, but do you think Peter has the, uh, the, the thought that he's arrogant right now? Do you think he's kind of cocky right now? I don't think so. I mean, Peter's probably coming to Jesus with, if he had one, a tail between his legs, with his head down, his hat in his hand, whatever metaphor you want to use. Perhaps he's on his knees. I don't know. Peter, of all people at this point, knows he's not worthy. He walked with Jesus, said he would die for him, and then not only didn't he die for him at this point, he actually didn't even lift him up with words for fear of maybe getting in prison. So I think Jesus deals with that with the first one pretty quick. And uh, I think on one hand, Peter probably is like, oh, this is cool. He's finally talking. We're dealing with this. On the other hand, as Hebrews says, uh, God disciplines the ones he loves, but discipline when it goes on is often not pleasant for the one being disciplined. And I think that's probably what's happening here. Now, notice Peter's answer to Jesus is, not a, is about his love for him. Yes, Lord, I love you. 
I think he's realizing it's not about, do you, you know, you think about in your own life. We don't want to do that when you say, well, I don't know if I love God as much as this guy does. I don't think that's the point. Do you love God? It's not a comparison thing. It's not like some people are more saved than others. Now, you can be more obedient and all that. That's true. But it's the idea, what we have to do in our life, and I think Peter has to do that here, is figure out that we need to have a connection with God that's real. And then you can worry about the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God. Make sure you're right with him. And that's what Peter's getting here. At this point, Peter probably doesn't know if he's going to be uh, uh, in Jesus' plan going on. Maybe he doesn't even know if he's, he's even worthy to be in the kingdom. I don't know. It doesn't say. Now, his threefold challenge, like I said, I don't think it takes a big look scholar that looks like it's designed to parallel his three denials. You know, it's, uh, you can do what you want with it, and there's all kinds of different things with the Greek and all that. Um, but the idea is that you denied me once. Do you love me? Yes. Okay, that one's done. Do you deny me twice? Do you love me? Yes, that one's done. You deny me, th- maybe that's what he's doing. I, I mean, it makes sense to me that he's paralleling this. He's essentially reinstating Peter. And now Peter, having gone through this, now realizes what it, lo- what it is like to be a sinner in need of forgiveness. I think Peter at this point pretty much understands grace. I think about that. One of the, one of the best uh, persons that he's passed on now that was good at telling the gospel and was very humble about it, wasn't humble earlier in his life, was Chuck Colson. I don't know if you guys knew him at all or heard of him. You know, he was in Watergate. The guy was a schmuck at best. Um, but kind of, he understood when, when, when you talked to him, he understood grace. Because he understood he did not deserve it. He deserved judgment. You know, it's easier when you do like prison ministry or jail ministry to get people, because all, they all know they're bad. The hard part to get the gospel to people, and you see that all the way through John, who is he always arguing with? The people who think they were good enough without him. And that's always the problem. Peter may have thought that. You know, I'm the consummate Jew, and you're coming, you're the Messiah, and I got a sword, and I'm whacking off ears, and I, I can do this all myself. You know, I know you're great, but, you know, I got it. You know, and Peter does that sometimes. It's like, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, this Christ that you just professed is going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. He's going to raise on the third day. And what's Peter say? No, you're not. I got this. You don't. Who's in charge in Peter's mind? It isn't Jesus. Jesus is in charge here. And Peter knows it. The other thing, you have the word love here, and it's in the Bible a lot. But I wonder if John 14, 15 from the Upper Room Discourse, and I don't have it up there, but it's a really short verse. You can memorize this one. If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love me? Do you love me? If you love me, you must do what I command you to do. And for Peter, he gets some very specific things here. What's he supposed to do? Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. When Peter probably could go back to John 10 and figure out that, well, the lambs are the ones that are seeking God and the ones that eventually become believers. And, well, I'm supposed to feed them. I'm supposed to give them the gospel. I think Peter gets it. And we're going to look at some places in 1 Peter where he really gets it. He understands what this means. What's he supposed to do? For Simon Peter, he has a direct command from the Lord to feed his lambs, and if you love me, you'll follow what I command. I've said that before. The love of God is different than the love of anyone else. If I told you, 
that if you love me, you need to do what I want you to do. So I'd like my car washed, my lawn mowed, and I think I'll take a calzone from bread dough for lunch. If you love me, keep my calzone. Well, that, you know, people, you, you'd say, well, get it yourself, and you should. But, but the, when Jesus is, God is different. God is what we call, he, he can't sin. He, he's perfect. He's holy. He's got all that. And so the way we show our love for him is out of obedience. And he's, because he's worthy of us being obedient. Because everything he asks us to do is lines up with what's good, perfect, right, and true. So when he says, feed my lambs, this is exactly what Peter was, was created to do. And he wants him to do it. So what feed or tend are things that shepherds do for the sheep? Look at, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, talking about church leaders. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So he's saying elder, you know, leaders in the church. A witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Churches for centuries have used this to try to come up with what does an elder look like? What is the elder's job? What is the pastor's job? And we get this out of Peter, who understands what it means to be a shepherd because he stood on the shore with Jesus, and Jesus looked him in the eye and said, feed my sheep. There's a background to this. You know, Peter gets it. You know, here this was probably written in the mid-60s, right before he died. And he understands what this means now. You know, don't be domineering to people. Treat them with love. Treat them with care. Give them the word. Tell them what it means to be a follower. And try to set an example in the way you live. Which means that when you mess up, you come to the throne of grace like Peter is. He could have left. What did Judas do when he screwed up? Judas did a little different path, didn't he? Peter's still here. Should we call him denying Peter? Nobody does that. Oh, that Thomas thing still bugs me. Anyway, moving on. Now, he includes that. You say, well, I'm not Peter. I, you know, I'm supposed to feed no sheep. But you get kind of a different way of looking at it in a couple chapters earlier. I love the way he puts this. In your hearts, and you're there as the Christians he's writing to in the first century, but I think it extrapolates to any Christian. In your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's, that's number one. Is he the one you are obedient to? You know, Jesus said it best. You know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I say? You know, so set, you know, I want to honor Christ by being obedient. All, and so what would it look like? What is one of the things that would look like obedience? Always being prepared to make a decision, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. I mean, one thing you need to do, and if you haven't done it already, think about the people in your life who do not know him. And what would you say if they came up and asked you something about him? When you go to that really cool church out there, why? And I hope you don't say because we've got, you know, really cool screens and all that kind of stuff. I hope you talk. I mean, 
talk about Jesus. The church is just a mechanism, right? I mean, I hope we do well. I don't mean that. But talk about I believe in him and I think that I can live my discipleship out for him in this church. And that's what, that's why I'm there. Because he's given me, well, why does he give you hope? Can you answer that question? And if you need help answering the questions, let's do it together. We'll figure it out. Always be prepared. You're not going to be prepared by just thinking, well, I hope it comes to me when they ask. How did that work for you when you went through your uh, studies in high school or wherever you're, what school you're in now? Does that work good? Don't study? Well, I hope it comes to me when the questions are asked. That's not preparation, folks. Be prepared. How can I make a good profession of faith that really focuses on Jesus? One of the biggest problems we have sometimes is people give their profession of faith and it's all about them. And be like Peter saying, well, you know, I, I was kind of, I was with this group and, and then I, I got a little kind of haughty and I lopped off a guy's ear and, and then eventually I got reinstated and then I ended up being an apostle and now I write letters and going good. What did he omit? Jesus. Don't tell your story without putting Jesus in the middle of it. Yes, it can be personal. Yes, it can be, oh, this is how I first realized I was guilty before a holy God and became a new creation because of his spirit. Don't just talk about you because you don't want him walking away and think, well, that guy's kind of a nut. That's okay if they think you're nutty because you like Jesus. But if they think you're nutty because you just gave them a story, they ask you about Jesus, and all they did was talk about you. That's not the way we want it. But being having Jesus as Lord and following him is an important component of being a believer. It, you can't take that out. We got so many people that want Jesus as their Savior, but they really don't want him as Lord. Well, that's not Jesus. That's just a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not really what you're signing up for. If you're not a believer, it, you can do it. It's, it's not. It's pretty simple. Just give your whole life to Jesus and say you'll follow him now and forever. It's really not that hard. Well, it might be hard to do. But this baloney, just have some sort of intellectual assent to Jesus and you're going to heaven, that's never in the Bible. In fact, you get the Matthew 7, get away from you, I never knew you. Because, again, is our heart going after him? Peter's heart's trying to find him here. And then Jesus gives us some interesting information that is somewhat hard to interpret, but not too tough, I think. Truly, truly, verse 18, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where do you not want to go. Now, if this was all we had, we might not know what he's talking about. But John helps us. This is how, this, this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. That's number four. So Peter's manner of death is kind of foretold. I mean, can you, can you think this through? You're going to have your hands stretched out and be taken. I mean, it's not really that hard given what kind of death was done in the Roman Empire. And we think, we're not completely sure, this is a tradition that, G, or that Peter was crucified in Rome uh, under Nero for being a Christian. And the tradition is that he did not want to die 
exactly like his Lord because he didn't feel worthy, so he has to be turned upside down. Which is, you can imagine how bad crucifixion would be not being upside down. Um, but he got it. This is a prediction of Peter's death. Now, you go to Second Peter, and you get this little verse that maybe this has something to do with it. I think it right. He just got done talking in the first part of Second Peter about what it means. If you want to know what it, what it should look like as a Christian, read just the first 12 verses of 2 Peter. How are you supposed to act if you say you follow him? So he did that. He said, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So I, he may be alluding to this. He may have got more information, but I think Jesus, do you know what you're signing up for? And I think sometimes in our contemporary Christianity, we don't realize what people are signing up for. You know, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who died in Flossenburg because he tried to help get rid of uh, the Nazi regime, he wrote uh, in his prison letters that we have to remember and remember where he was at, and he did get hung, I think it was just a week before the armistice was signed, so sure it would have been nice. He died at 39 years old. I always thought it would have been nice to have some more writings from Diedrich, but uh, he's got some good ones. Uh, the Cost of Discipleship is just a wonderful book. But in his letters in prison, he writes, when we call people to come to Jesus, we need to tell them that they need to come and die. Now, that doesn't usually get as much money in the plate, um, and I know you're thinking, well, I thought this was going to be a fun sermon, you know. Well, that is fun. If you just don't think about it. It's, you, or do you come and say, I'm going to give all to him? Otherwise, why would these people die for him if it's just for gain now? If it's your best life now, why would you die for him? Because that's not your best life now. Peter had this in front. He signed up for it and kept through it. It wasn't all bad. I'm sure he had some good times. I mean, he dies you know, 30-some years later. Another important and interesting thing here is the progression of Peter's faith, and we see that, and we have to remember that. We can't think that everybody that believes in Jesus in any given moment has all the discipleship stuff they need. That, it's a growth thing. Why do you think it's called a seed? It doesn't say put a bunch of plants out there. You got to grow, and how do you grow? Through the Word. It's not rocket science. From these three denials to these three affirmations, and then after that, he gets this, maybe you could see it as a discouraging prophecy about his death. And then after that, he says, follow me. It seems like maybe Jesus is testing his faith one final time before he ascends. Are you going to still follow me now that you know what's going to happen to you? That this isn't going to all be, you know, nice things? Well, we know the answer, don't we? We just read First and Second Peter, so he agrees to do this. And then we get, the writer of our gospel gets a little press here. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Fifth time, you follow me. So they say, so the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple will not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he will remain until I come, what is that to you? So we have kind of an interesting verse there. 
First of all, it looks like Peter's a little concerned about John. What about him? And you think about this, wonder what Peter was wondering. Do you remember who was at the cross? Which disciple was there? John. You wonder if Peter's thinking, well, this guy didn't screw up. Is it going to be better for him? You know, I don't know what Peter, the text doesn't tell us, but it is interesting. Maybe Peter's kind of the leader of the group. Maybe he's just saying, well, maybe he said all the rest of them and all we have is John. But again, what does Jesus do? He clearly instructs Peter regarding his will, God's will for Peter. And then he talks a little bit about John a little bit in a cryptic way. Really what it came down to it looks like this gospel is saying and Jesus is saying is Peter's not to be concerned about any special arrangements he has with the beloved disciple. Peter needs to just simply follow the Lord and obey the direction and commandments he's been given specifically by Jesus. I think Jesus is saying you got enough. Don't worry about I'll take care of John. And then verse 23 obviously was put in there because of a misunderstanding, right? This was put in there because it says, so the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple would not die. That must have been going around, right? So John wants to address that before he finishes up. There's a misunderstanding among the first century followers of Jesus regarding the timing of Jesus' return or the length of John's life. I don't know if you knew that. And, uh, there are cults, Christian cults, American Christian cults that believe John's still alive. Because of this, um, what did we talk about? Never read a Bible verse? I mean, you would only believe that if, if you only read part of this, but that sometimes is the problem. Really, Jesus did not promise the beloved disciple he would see his second coming. We see that clearly. Instead, he effectively told Peter to mind his own business. And sometimes that's really the way it should be, right? In this case, and this is unique, I realize that, but he's really saying to Peter, it's really none of your business what John and I take care of. You do what you're told. And if, you know, how's that in uh, you're on a need-to-know basis and you don't need to know. That's kind of where we are here. And this is just conjecture just because of the Old Testament kind of coming back to mind when I wrote this. Another possibility, and I'm just putting this as a possibility of what's going on here. Um, we have to sometimes be careful when we look at what it means by coming in the Bible, does it mean that Jesus is a second coming, new heaven, new earth? It very well could be. And I'm not making this possibility something you need to believe, but it's, it's thinking about it. Because you know what happened in 70 AD? And Jesus, we had this in Luke, we have this in Mark, where Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. And it happens, he said, you know, in one generation, and by golly, it was almost exactly 40 years later. Now, if you go back into the Old Covenant, if you remember, the temple got destroyed another time, if you remember your Old Testament. And how would you know this stuff? How would you know about the Old Testament? You might just have to read it. Ha, got you again. This welcome stuff's going all the way through this whole day. And it helps us understand texts, I think. We don't want to get too goofy with it. But Yahweh brought disaster to an unfaithful and idolatrous Judah back in 586 B.C. It's a, it's a good date to remember. 722 B.C. is 2. That's when Assyria dispersed the northern tribes. Judah is the southern tribe. 
where, where Jerusalem is. That's where the temple resides. Now, remember, I want you to look at this Jeremiah 44 passage, but remember, who was it that took over Jerusalem? It was Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Jeremiah's whole book is essentially saying, God has decided we're going to lose. Don't fight back. Make it as easy as you can. And what did they do? They fought back. And Nebuchadnezzar came in and just completely destroyed the people, took them to exile. There'd already been exiles. Daniel was already over there from 605. Ezekiel was already over there from 597. So look at these scriptures in, in chapter 44. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disasters that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon the cities of Judah. Well, you read that, you would think God came down and did the but he, he did, but he used Babylon to do it. Verse 6 of that same chapter, Therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation. Again, that's true, but he used Babylon as his mechanism. Now Jesus in Luke 19 predicts the same fate for the unbelieving Jews that reject him. And Rome was God's instrument then. So, you read this, he says, and when he drew near, he saw the city, he wept over it and said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now you are hidden, they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So there's that visitation coming thing in there again. Same word, really. But again, Rome is used, but God used Rome. Rome didn't know it. Babylon didn't know it. And I'm sure there's times today that we don't know that God's using nations and armies that we're just not aware. Kind of like Peter, what are we supposed to do? Follow me. Don't worry about things you don't know and just do what you're supposed to do. So since Jesus told Peter about his death, traditionally believed to be crucifixion upside down in 67 AD, perhaps he's revealing here that John, unlike Peter, will live to see the destruction of Jerusalem. And we do believe that happened. So that's possibly what's going on here, that he's going he's gonna to be the one. We think every other disciple traditionally, we know James did. He got beheaded in the first part of Acts, James, the brother of John. It's possibly what he's talking about here, but... I would not go to the mat for it. I don't know exactly what's going on here. I don't think John is still alive. Um, he died, we think, on Patmos um, eventually. Um, but what's, again, maybe using a little of what Jesus said to Peter, perhaps it's not our business to know the things that we don't know. Um, just feed my sheep as, as, and follow me, as he said. So, Let's finish up the last couple verses here, the ending of John's gospel. Drum roll. Oh, there's no drummer. Dang it, that would have been good. Maybe next time we'll get a drummer up here. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Really cool ending. It sounds a lot like the ending of chapter 20, but 
we know from verse 24 that John apparently added this last portion to the first part by dictation. And you can tell by the, this is the disciple, one person, and we know that, well, who's we? Well, he probably used a scribe like most people do. Um, Paul did that quite a bit. And we see this a couple times, both at the end of Romans and the end of 1 Corinthians. Remember letters back then, the greeting was at the end. Letters now, it's at the beginning. In Romans 16, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Well, he's not saying he's the one that God inspired. Paul was the one that was inspired. Tertius is the one that put pen to paper. And I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand at the end of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Sothenes is mentioned at the beginning. Most people think he was the, the scribe who did that. So probably this is being written by a scribe. Um, I don't know. I've seen, I don't think Doc John, we, we've got some people, doctors are real good at this. You can't read their penmanship, which is just silly to me because, well, I don't know. It's either aspirin or arsenic. Let's go with arsenic. Um, but luckily, pharmacists, which we do have one there, I would assume 90% of pharmacy school is reading doctor's handwriting, you know, is that, but, uh, but you think about some people are getting, I mean, and these guys, you know, Paul, we know got beaten a lot and probably his hands weren't that great. And, you know, just having somebody that can write good because this isn't just writing a prescription, which is helpful. This is writing God's words. And so a lot of times they did use a, a scribe to do this. So that, why do I tell you this? Because that explains 24, because what we essentially have is the scribe abs his own comment. He's a believer too. We don't know who it is, but he said, and we know that his testimony is true. I think what he's saying is we know, those of us who are still left after this is written, we know that what got written is what he wanted written. And that we can prove almost beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we have what we need. We've got all kinds of textual evidence. Whether you believe it is up to you. But scholarship trying to defute, uh, refute the, the Bible coming down the way it was supposed to, that's kind of just, it got smacked around so much, it's gone. Even the worst atheist that hates Jesus still will tell you that we have what he wanted. They just don't believe what he said was true. It really comes down to that. But it is nice to know, isn't it, that we have what we need. And that's what I would tell people. Well, why do you follow the Bible? Because God saw to it that we have what we need, and I believe what he said. And that wouldn't be a bad First Peter 3.15 thing if you wanted to use it. Um, now, this second ending is kind of what it is, very close to the first. Remember back in chapter 20 after Thomas is there and puts his hands on his side and all that. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm not sure you need another reason to read your Bible, but this is one. What do you think John thinks about how we come to faith? How do we find eternal life? You know, you think about it. If it's true that we can get everything we need directly from the Spirit without any intervention by anybody else, then why write all these books? And I know people say, well, I don't like to read books. It's like, well, God just doesn't like you. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Learn to read better. I don't know what to tell you. Or, you know, they've got good apps. They've got good reader. There's one that'll show you the text and read it for you. If you want to know about that one, let me know. Bible Gateway, you can go there and get it. It's free. 
And it's even dramatized. I mean, it's got kind of that stuff in the background. And it's, in the beginning was the word. You know, that kind of stuff. The way I usually read. You know, and, and, but this is it. You think about this is so important. And really, all you have to do to look through history to see problems in, in Christianity doing what it should, it's always biblical illiteracy and apathy. You could draw a straight line all the time. When people know their Bible and try to understand it with humbly before God, the church does wonderful things for the world. And people come to him and disciples are made. And when the church doesn't know the Bible, you get weird doctrines. You get cults snapping up everywhere and nobody knows what to say to them because they're too stupid. That wasn't very loud, but you know what I mean. need another drum roll, right? That was... But this is what John wants, and he kind of puts it at the end. He said, if we put everything in there, we wouldn't have enough books for it. So why didn't he put the rest in? He gave us what we needed. That's what he's always doing. John and the Holy Spirit who guided him desired that these words would lead people to true, eternal life-giving faith. So no, we don't worship the Bible. But we do try to understand it and know it and apply it because we worship the one that it attests to. Let us pray. Fathers, we finish up this wonderful gospel. Hopefully we know you a little bit better than we did before we started. We thank you for uh, giving us exactly what we need. Forgive us for not taking the time to know it better. For each one here, for anybody listening, I pray that we have the desire to know you better, to change our schedules that are so busy sometimes, to find ways to know your word and have it change our lives the way you intended. Amen.